The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, I thought that I would uh, start out by having you um, ask yourself a question because I want to talk about self-acceptance. So um, I'd like you to just take a moment and think about um, a situation in your life that's a little bit charged for you where um, it might be a bit challenging to sort of accept the circumstances and accept yourself. So think about what self-acceptance would be like for you. This is just for you. I'm not going to ask you to share this with anyone. But what would it be like for you to um, accept yourself in a situation that's difficult? How do you think about self-acceptance? Okay. So if your eyes are closed, you can open your eyes and come back into the group. <clears throat> so I want to talk about uh, what self-acceptance is in the context of Buddhist meditation, or try to. And I will tell you that this talk is um, informed and inspired by one of my teachers. So I'm going to do my best to communicate what I learned from him. And uh, if I get anything wrong, it's my error, not my teacher's. So, um, what is self-acceptance? Uh, when we inquire into this question of what self-acceptance is, uh, in the context of Buddhist meditation, we see that it's actually not about a self, but rather it's about um, the psychological beliefs and behaviors that we take to be ourselves. So let me repeat that. We see that it's not about a self, but it's rather about our beliefs and behaviors that we imagine to be ourselves. So now think, think back to when I asked you the question of how you would accept yourself in difficult circumstances or some circumstance that was charged and see if what I just said makes sense to you. See, is it a self that you were accepting or was it some behavior or belief about what was happening to you that you were trying to accept? Okay, so we develop self-acceptance in the context of these behaviors. 
we really do, and in order to do this, we really do have to know where we are, we have to know what's happening in our experience, and we have to know what resources we have with us. And this means that we need to cultivate a radical kind of honesty about our strengths and our weaknesses. And this requires a quality of mindfulness that also has clear comprehension as part of it. So this idea of mindfulness and clear comprehension, the understanding of what we're actually noticing with our mindfulness. And this also requires a quality of kindness, of patience, of uh, courage, and of commitment to living in in integrity with our, our deepest core values and the intentions that arise and are influenced by those values. So, <clears throat> so we begin to practice, and we begin by cultivating mindfulness and a quality of equanimous observation. So you begin to look at your experience. You begin to look at the flow and the process of what's happening. So while we were meditating here, I was just watching what was happening inside of me. And I noticed thoughts and emotions and sensations. And, and when I got quiet enough, I could actually perceive a quality of flow, of change, that when I wasn't aware of it, there, were, there was a kind of a resistance to it, trying to control it. But once I could plug into the flow, I could sort of accept what was happening. So I want to suggest that if in fact what we think of as a self is actually a process of ever-changing sensations, thoughts, emotions, mind states and so on and so forth, moods, to the degree that we reject any part of that or deny that or push against it or run away from it, to that degree, we actually do a kind of violence to ourselves. We kind of deny ourself if ourself is not some self but some process. But Does this make sense? Yes, okay. So as we cultivate this mindfulness in an equanimous, steady, even stable observation, and this happens gradually, it doesn't happen, at least it doesn't for me, I can't sit down and just plug into it. I have to sort of settle down into it. And then it's almost like you begin, I almost begin to feel part of the, the flow. Um, <clears throat> when this occurs, it's possible to to perceive or to become aware of uh, familiar th- uh, thoughts, thought patterns, and emotional uh, cyclings, and so on and so forth. This this awareness begins to emerge of these things, and we begin to see the momentum and power of our mental inclinations and our mental habits. 
You see, these things just, they're so ordinary and they're so habitual and they're so automatic that we take them to be who we are. And when we notice the force of it and the momentum of it, you can actually begin to be a little bit kinder to yourself because to try to shift and change these things is not easy. It's not easy. We've got a lifetime of, of sort of moving um, in, in sync with these habits and not even questioning them. So am I speaking loud enough for the people in the back? You can hear? Okay, good. Okay. <clears throat> so basically, <clears throat> when we see the momentum and power of these habits uh, as a flow of experience, as I mentioned, we gradually come to see that <clears throat> these behaviors are conditioned activities, that they're actually a process that's occurring. And they're not ourself. They're not who we think we are. They're not our identity, although we, we identify with them. So when we begin to investigate this experience with some sort of clarity, um, instead of finding some self who's planning and strategizing and worrying and, and uh, thinking and fill in the blanks, uh, we see in set instead the underlying conditioned activities of the process itself that generates a sense of who we are. So think about it. Just for a moment, think about it. Think about it. the way that you think, the way that you feel, and so on and so forth. And see if those beliefs and those thoughts about yourself aren't who you think you are. And this isn't like a test. This is simply an observation because we all do it to greater or lesser degrees. Even when we become aware that, oh, this is a process that's happening, I'll speak for myself, honestly, I still get caught thinking it's me. You see? So it's, it's good to remind myself from every now and again what's actually going on. And this is helpful in an immediately per, uh, practical way because it gives us the ability to uh, diminish or even sometimes completely let go of these habits or these habit-forming activities before they take root and become another self who we think we are. Does this make sense? Okay. So with wise investigation, we can see what takes place in our thinking process itself. We, be <coughs> we begin to see our perceptions or our mental images. We begin to see feelings as liking and disliking. You know, we, <coughs> we think we are what we like or what we dislike. We think that this is so much a part of us. This is just a feeling. We begin to see our mental activities as just mental constructions, impulses, reactions. 
for example, like judging or strategizing or planning or speculating or mental proliferation. All these are just mental activities. And these kinds of activities of minds are <coughs> of mind and feelings are what hook us time after time after time. They just hook us and they trap us. So <coughs> when it becomes possible to separate the activity from the image or perception that triggers the activity, to see it for what it simply is, we sort of cut it off at the source. We remove the fuel so that we don't necessarily have to go into that proliferation mode. And, <clears throat> and then the activity loses steam. So to make this really simple, you're meditating and you are thinking. And then there's, there's the content of the thoughts, and he said this and she said that, and I did this and they did that. And then you notice that there's the process of thinking itself, which is sort of underneath the, the awareness of the content of the thoughts. And when you can see the process of thinking, you don't, you're not as hooked by the content of the thoughts. You begin to have a little bit more space. So in this very way, as we begin to look at our activity, we begin to free ourselves from the identification with whatever it is that we happen to be um, caught by, if we are caught. So this kind of attending is wise attending. This is what we call wise attending. And this allows our awareness to rest in a peaceful sense, a kind of, um, it allows us to release our hold on whatever it is that um, we're thinking about or feeling. And uh, I want to suggest that this kind of meeting of our experience is, in fact, a quality of compassion to meet experience as it actually is. Even if, if you perceive yourself as being caught by the experience, to actually see it for what it is and to not sugarcoat it or deny it or try to get away from it is an expression of compassion. This is what compassion is. Compassion is able to be with the truth of your experience with all of its opposing, opposite, competing, um, whatever it is that's, <laughs> that's going on inside of us. It's never a simple case of black and white. Now this is one way and now it's another way. So compassion is this clear att attending to awareness, allowing it to just reveal what's actually there and to not fight against it. So <clears throat> this process, as we, as we engage in it, um, actually reveals to us a multitude 
of afflicted and unnecessary psychological activities and and um, mind states that that uh, uh, generate suffering in us. So we begin to notice what's going on, and then we begin to notice we're identified with what's going on, and then we begin to notice that we're suffering. So <clears throat> this isn't rocket science. What it is is just being willing to take the time, and it's, it does require an effort, and make the effort to just look carefully, you see, and not to reject our experience, not to reject ourself, you see, not to reject our thoughts, not to, it's, it doesn't mean that you go along with them, but you recognize what they are. You recognize the thought as a thought, a, a, a mood as a mood, an emotion as an emotion. <clears throat> so uh, we gain insight into the habits and activities then that lead us down one rabbit hole after another. <clears throat> so let's think about this and how we might develop this kind of wise attending. So one way we can cultivate self-acceptance is by being open to and by sustaining um, an awareness of activities, mental activities, such as the, the uh, <clears throat> such as harsh self-judgments or criticisms or the way that we judge other people and then the feelings of aversion we have um, because of the guilt that arises because of that kind of aversive activity. It's just, you know, we just beat ourselves up. And as we begin to notice this, just all we have to do is notice it. Uh, this begins to release and unplug because we see it for what it is. Is this making sense? Okay, good. So <clears throat> it is possible to cultivate a stillness of heart that responds to these ever-changing activities of life. And um, it is possible to do this in a spacious and non-reactive kind of way. And this is an example of how you can cultivate, consciously cultivate compassion. Um, and doing this is an expression and um, it, it requires and is an expression of equanimity. So I want to suggest here that um, you can't really separate compassion from equanimity or equanimity from compassion. You see, in order to be compassionate, to have a compassionate response, we have to be willing to, to be with the truth of our experience. I want something to happen, I like something, and at the same time I feel grumpy and impatient and greedy. And that's all true at the same time. And to be able to be with that truth, that's a very simplistic 
kind of a, an example, is, is what compassion is. To meet, to meet myself at that level is an expression of self-compassion. But it's also an expression of equanimity. You see? So, <clears throat> uh, when this quality of equanimity is absent, it's very easy for us to default to these old habits. It could be something like irritability or anger or frustration. And um, when we do that, we fall out of balance with ourselves. I love the Australian expression, you fall off your perch. We fall off, off our perch. We become overwhelmed. We become hooked. And, um, <clears throat> and we definitely are not compassionate with ourselves. We're also not empathetic with ourselves. See, and this, it's not just with ourselves, we, we do this with other people. So, um, it's said that equanimity actually retains empathy. And empathy is that quality of being able to understand what another person m- might be thinking or or feeling we can, or what we ourselves might be thinking or feeling, we have a sort of a an awareness, a cognitive appreciation of it, and then there's this willingness to actually um, sort of feel what another person might be feeling. It's like, like to put yourself in another person's shoes, right? Something like that. That's a simple way of doing it. Um, <clears throat> There's things going on in our brain that uh, also contribute to it. But uh, for the purposes of this talk, I just want to say that ability to stay in touch with yourself in terms of what's happening, you see? Because when when we don't attend carefully and when we are subject to these mental habits, these constructs of mind, we're easily swept away. We're easily confused momentarily. We come back, but momentarily we're sort of off-center, you know? And uh, when that happens, we're no longer empathetic with ourselves. We're no longer in an empathetic connection with ourselves. And... um, but the quality of equanimity um, is absolutely patient. It allows us to be with ourselves, even if we're out of balance. It allows us to be with ourselves in such a way that we come back into balance. So if you think about... um, I want to introduce this idea of um, a difference between empathy and compassion. So, <clears throat> so social science will define compassion using um, four aspects. Let's say compassion 
has, first of all, a cognitive awareness of suffering in yourself or in another person. It has an effective emotional response to that suffering. So we are aware of suffering and then we feel something, right? It has a uh, intention always to alleviate or mitigate the suffering in some way, if, if that's possible. This intention is in the form of a wish. We wish the suffering to go away. And then the fourth aspect is the movement towards altruistic love, which is the motivation to act to alleviate this suffering if something can be, if some action could happen. Um, this does not mean to, f- to fix the suffering, because sometimes things cannot be fixed. So those are the four aspects that are commonly um, uh, used to define compassion in a way that compassion can be studied. Empathy are the first two qualities of that. So the awareness of suffering one can feel as an empathic response and the effective emotional uh, response to that awareness. Now, empathy can be, you can have empathy for um, somebody's good fortune or empathy is not just a response to suffering. Compassion is always and only a response to suffering. But (coughs) empathy does not have that third and fourth quality that compassion does. It does not have the wish to alleviate the suffering. It simply recognizes what's happening and has a response to what's happening. And when that response gets out of whack, when we become overwhelmed in some way, the empathy completely begins to um, go into a state of distress and we become confused. This is what it's like when we, f- we, we sort of fall off our perch. And that's a temporary thing that happens. We reestablish ourselves. But this, this is what goes on. Now, with equanimity, um, <clears throat> we see that we're not indifferent to the fact that we're struggling. We're just patient with it. And that allows us to come back into some sort of balance with ourselves. So when things are going well, we're not seduced by some dreamy, blissed out sort of state. And we don't expect those kinds of good feelings to last forever and ever. And when things aren't going well, we don't lose ourselves in despair. We don't lash out and blame other people or ourselves. We don't project onto other people. And think about it, because in both scenarios, we are actually reducing or diminishing the potential for stress and suffering in our lives. We're, we're in a 
responding to our lives, if not in, a, in an equanimous way, certainly in a much more equanimous way. And I want to just circle back to, to how we got here, because we got here by noticing that the kinds of things that throw us off balance are thoughts and emotions and sensations and mind states and ideas and beliefs, not ourselves. And we identify with those things as being ourselves. And so when this flow becomes charged or intense in some way, we lose our balance. You see? When we can see with with mindfulness and an understanding what's happening, even if we are still subject to it, there's more space around it and we become a little bit more confident in ourselves. We begin to feel like we have the capacity to um, you know, to uh, not control our lives, but to be with ourselves uh, in the ebb and flow of our experience without being, uh, you know, basket cases. This, this really is a very, very practical way of learning how to be with experience. And uh, we, we, we can then meet our our thoughts um, and our emotions with kindness and with empathy. We can stay in touch with ourselves with empathy rather than with harsh judgments and um, reactive self-referential narrative stories, approving or disapproving, liking or disliking ourselves, rejecting parts of ourselves, if only we were this way instead of that way. You know, we're just all human beings. We're doing the best that we can. And uh, if we could do better, we probably would. Um, And you just begin to give yourself a break. You begin to be a little bit nicer to yourself, a little bit kinder to yourself. And (laughs) when that happens, people generally report that... um, that also extends to other people. We're willing to cut other people a little bit more slack uh, when we realize that we're all in this together. And um, we say that, but we don't always believe that. And uh, the fact is that it is very true. And (laughs) it's not that we're all alike, but at our core level, everybody... Everybody, everyone in this room knows what it's like to be happy and to want to be happy. And everybody in this room knows what it's like to not be happy and to wish that they were happy. Everybody knows what it's like to want not to suffer. I had a student in one of my courses say, would you stop saying every that?" Everyone wants to be happy. I don't want to be happy. (laughs) I said, really? (laughs) 
said, do you want to suffer? And she said, well, no, of course I don't want to suffer. I said, well, that's what I mean by being happy. <laughs> we all, we all want to be happy. So, um, so <clears throat> when we begin to look with some sort of kind and patient attention, we see that the patterns of our thoughts and behaviors, they just ebb and flow through our experience. They come and go without being, and, and we, we see them coming, coming and going. And when we are learning, t- when we learn slowly and gradually to attend in this way, we, we, we aren't so easily drawn in. We're not so easily uh, hooked by them. Um, it allows us to sort of take the, uh, uh, well, it allows us to witness what we often mistake as ourself for what it actually is. It's a dynamic, continuous process of impulses, thoughts, reactions, emotions, followed by new thoughts, reactions, and emotions. And <clears throat> these causes and conditions, these thoughts and emotions and so forth and so on, <clears throat> are actually the process that we call karma. <clears throat> so <clears throat> while they create in us an impression, my leg fell asleep, <laughs> I have to... <laughs> See, I'm just a person suffering like everyone else here. (laughs) (coughs) 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 So, while we take them to be a self, um, (coughs) they don't arise... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) They don't arise from or... (coughs) Or uh, do they define some, some permanent self? So you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> They're not solid, <clears throat> and there's no historical being or person. No matter how hard we try to convince ourselves that there is, there's only this process, <clears throat> this flow, this ever-changing stream of thoughts and emotions and impulses and feelings. See? And, <clears throat> and then someone is going to say, but there's this awareness that there's me here somewhere. You see? <clears throat> and I acknowledge that. And I ask myself the same question. There, what is this awareness that knows all of this. <clears throat> but this practice of self-acceptance um, also leads to the insight that all of these mind states, all of these thoughts, all of these emotions, all of these judgments are undependable and radically impermanent. Radically, just think about it. What what was going on in your life while you were meditating? T- 
10 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago or whenever we stopped. Uh, that's all, it's just gone, right? And we don't know what's going to happen 20 minutes from now. <clears throat> It'll just be, and yet there's something that we feel connects us to the past and to the future. What it is is a mystery. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to point out <laughs> that when we look for the self, it's very hard to find. I would suggest that, that um, we're not going to have much luck in that effort. And, <clears throat> and that <clears throat> our experience is really radically impermanent. And it's one thing to think that these things are impermanent or that our life is impermanent. And it's another thing to experience impermanence. Because that can be really disorienting. See, it's one thing to cognize this or to get this idea. And it's another thing to be with the truth of that. Because that challenges the way that we have built our lives and the way that we think of life, even as a society, you see. We have this idea that things are actually different than they really are. And when you begin to look at this and you begin to see that it's really, it's really true that when we examine our thoughts and our mental constructs and so on and so forth and see them for what they are, um, uh, we're, we're, our, our ideas about who we are become uh, sort of at risk and they're challenged. So one might say, well, why would we do that? I'll leave that for you to answer. <laughs> As we cultivate the ability to maintain our focus on our mind states and our thoughts and our emotions, which are what is referred to as dhammas, we begin to notice that they too all finally cease to be. These thoughts come and go. You see? Just like our breath. It comes and it goes. And we don't try to hold on to our breath, but we do try to hold on to our thoughts and our emotions. <clears throat> and the ending of our thoughts and our emotions isn't usually abrupt and shocking. More commonly, it's a gradual fading away and an unraveling. You see, if they just ended abruptly, it would be easier to see, oh, this is what's going on. But they don't. They just sort of trail off. In most cases, not always. The same is true for their arising. They don't necessarily just come in and bowl us over. They just suddenly appear, and the next thing we know, we're thinking about something. Where did the thought come from? Just think about when you're meditating and, and you start, the mind drifts off, wanders, and then you realize you're thinking about something. So, <clears throat> so 
these dhammas uh, don't arise out of nowhere. They come together. That, that is, they're compounded, which is what I, I mentioned a moment ago, from causes and conditions. And these causes and conditions are things like liking and disliking. And, uh, and, and then we hold on to what we like and we try to get away from what we dislike. And, and, and this is one way that you can begin to describe dependent arising. One thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing. So <clears throat> these, these compounded causes and conditions are what uh, uh, dependent arising is. And this kind of an insight um, deepens our understanding of impermanence. And we begin to actually directly experience the fundamental truth of, of the ins, insubstantiality and dependent arising of all thoughts, of all emotions, of all mind states, of all moods, of all sensations, of all experience, of all phenomena, actually. And if we're able to get some level of understanding of this quality of not-self, anatta is the Pali term for it, and this quality of impermanence, which is referred to as anicca, um, there's some possibility of um, releasing the mind from the attachments and the momentum of these these patterns that we've had, they're lifelong patterns. Um, so, so this is how equanimity um, that expresses as self-acceptance, which is the acceptance of the process that we are a part of, um, <clears throat> this is how it allows us to keep our hearts open, to keep us honest, to keep us in touch, and to, and to allow us to investigate our experience carefully with a kind of a kind attention and uh, it allows us to uh, have access to insights that we wouldn't have when we're trying to force things to be in a way that they're actually not. And this supports um, uh, our ability and our capacity to trust that whatever we're going through, whether it's easy or difficult, whether we think it's of it as good or bad, um, it allows us to see that it all arises due to and dependent upon changing causes and conditions. So things always change. That's an undeniable truth. And if we can learn to accept and um, uh, 
if we can learn to accept this, we can learn to release our belief that an abiding, permanent self can be found in this process of change. Because it's, it can't when we're not going to be able to. So in this way, <clears throat> we slowly begin to learn that we can take responsibility for our, the causes and conditions that are arising in our mind in the present moment without drowning in the mistakes and errors of the past. And we can choose to cultivate new and more wholesome um, and healthy habits of mind. And this is the fruit of self-acceptance that's uh, found in the stillness of equanimity. So, those are my thoughts for this morning. May you all rest in the stillness of equanimity and learn to be a good friend to yourself as you encounter the ever-changing ebb and flow of who you think you are. (laughs) Thank you.